Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Banter. We're back from our little Christmas hiatus. Um, And joining us today is Brian Miller, who's a non-resident fellow with us at AEI, where his work focuses on Medicare payments, FDA regulation, healthcare competition, and public health policy. In addition to being a scholar, he's also a practicing hospitalist at Johns Hopkins Hospital, an assistant professor of medicine and business at JHU. Before joining AEI, he had a range of experience with the FDA, FTC, FCC, and CMS, and he's still a member of CMS's Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee and a consultant and expert witness on health insurance for the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the FTC. Thanks for joining us on Banter. Thank you for having me. Brian, it's great to have you. I, before we get into Brian, I do want I, you remind me that we're back after Christmas and mm-hmm. that reminded me I didn't get your card. I didn't get I, a Christmas I, I'm card. Not, I'm not like the door family. Yeah. I don't actually have a seen it Christmas card. You haven't every gotten year. to that stage no, in life? No, okay. I'm definitely not okay. matured enough for okay. that. Okay, well, so I wasn't, it wasn't like I, you left me off the no, list. No, just, so I wouldn't no. I wouldn't admit list. it if oh, I did, oh, yeah. probably. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay Brian, um, thank you for being here. You're a relatively new scholar at AI, and we are really pleased and honored to have you. You've done some great, amazing work already, you've shown a lot of energy. Um, but one of the things we like to let our listeners know is how did you come to AI? What is, what is your background? What is your credibility in this field? Well, uh, great to be here as both a practicing physician and a public policy expert. So I trained in internal medicine and then also public health and preventive medicine, which is 0.5% of the physician workforce. A lot of us are involved in regulation, certification bodies, health insurance, and other, I call it behind the curtain parts of the healthcare system, hopefully trying to make it run better. Uh, through that experience, I worked at the Federal Trade Commission on hospital mergers, pharmaceutical product mergers, medical device mergers, drugstore murder, mergers, and competition policy. Also at the FDA as a reviewer reviewing drugs for market entry, at the FCC, also at the CMS Innovation Center. And so I basically have touched most of the administrative state and regulatory apparatus at the federal level that addresses healthcare. Wow. So you're sort of, you're, you're sort of a doctor of, of the way the healthcare is delivered through the various bureaucracies. Yes. <laughs> is, that, is that correct? And so, and so before, I, I just, and are you still seeing patients too? Yes. I still practice clinically as a hospitalist and I was actually on service last week. It was pretty wild. So my burning question is, you have to tell us what a hospitalist is. Um, and A also, term I'm not familiar with. I'm not familiar with. And just, so on a given week, you're doing research here, but then you're also at Hopkins. So like, kind of how do you... What does a regular week look like while you're seeing patients, but also being a scholar? So I, I would say that when I work in the hospital, it's seven days in a row, 12 hours a day, sometimes 14. So your standard work week is a minimum of 84 hours. And hospital medicine is internal medicine that's inpatient only. So you see people who are admitted for basically everything, be it pneumonia, drug overdose, uh, heart failure, exacerbation, uh, blood clots, whatever it is. Uh, and you're the doctor for the floor. You're admitting patients. You're also doing cross cover for existing patients. So stuff comes up. You're the person that they call. And mm. You're usually the only person. 
So let's start with a fundamental question. Are hospitals today, you're a hospitalist, which I presume means you're an expert in the way hospitals <laughs> That's run. That's how we're going to define it. Okay. Uh, you're an expert. Is, is a given any given hospital in the United States today more effectively run than it was 25 years ago? Unfortunately not. So. Ah, Brian, what have you been doing all this time? <laughs> well... <laughs> I, I guess we're going backwards. We we we're going backwards and going flat, or at least mm, sort of pedaling in the same place on a stationary bike. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics has this nice graph, which I like, and uh, disappeared from the internet for a while, and then reappeared conveniently, um, measuring labor productivity for private community hospitals, and it shows that on every year, on average, that I've been alive, and that's an increasingly uh, long time, unfortunately. Uh, labor productivity for the hospital industry has been flat or negative. And what that means is that, you know, the doctor in 2000 versus 2022 has the same productivity, and that is unheard of for industries. It is. It's remarkable. No gains at all in, a tech, in an industry that is full of innovation and technology. Why is that? So I would say that the healthcare delivery industry is not full of innovation. I would say that most of the innovation that has happened in healthcare is from the medical device and pharmaceutical product industries. Mm -hmm. The healthcare delivery industry, so hospitals and clinical practices or outpatient practices are around numbers, 51% of healthcare expenditures, and no one's really put them under the microscope. Uh, when you do put them under the microscope, you find uh, a plethora of regulations, a whole bunch of government subsidies, and then also increasing market concentrations. So it's nice if you're a regulated monopolist that is also subsidized by the government. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, was it three quarters of hospitals are nonprofit 501c3 tax exempt institutions? So all the symptoms of, of a badly run organization. Uh, a poorly run organization that is happily protected by a bureaucracy in the federal and state and local governments. Wow, that, you're you're a change agent. You want to turn it upside down. Well, it's sort of frustrating when you go through medical school. I remember going through med school, and uh, this patient wanted to be discharged at noon because they had to make this flight for their family reunion. And you know, the hospital team was like, you know, as a med student, they were just like, oh, okay, you know, we'll get to it. And of course, the patient was discharged at five p.m. And you know, I, as the young naive medical student, asked like, well, why don't we do this? And the answer is, well, this is the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. And then I, I remember I was in a, a subspecialty clinic again as a med student. We were running two hours late, which is you know unfathomable. Like if I did that, my mother would have killed me, right? You can imagine any of our mothers would have killed us. Even even Amtrak's yeah. not happy. Yeah, yeah even 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 Amtrak's not that bad. I mean, uh, outside of Southwest Airlines, most of the airlines are even better than that. So and like I remember asking this faculty member who I was in med school, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is just the way the system is." You know, uh, two hours late is not bad for me. Normally, I'm two and a half hours mm -hmm. late. And it's just like this level of service performance, because it is a, a service industry, is just, you know, it's unfathomable. Imagine so if you what's went to the, Starbucks. So what's the number one answer? What's the number one? What do, you, what do we have to do to, to free up hospitals, to innovate and operate like uh, uh, entities that are seeking customers? Well, I, I think there are a couple things you have to do. One is you have to increase competition. Right. And the way you increase competition, one is you remove unnecessary regulation. Two, you take the government's foot off the consolidation accelerator, getting rid of those policies that drive market consolidation and promote market entry. And then you take away subsidies. 
there are a whole laundry list of subsidies to these inefficient industries. And like, think about it. If you're, but I, but just I gotta go. I gotta focus on consolidation. Isn't sometimes the people that argue for consolidation aren't they saying it on the grounds of productivity and efficiency? Yeah, I mean, there's the argument that uh, a lot of hospitals make when they buy their largest competitors that they're going to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. When you actually look at the evidence, it suggests that they're not more efficient. Prices go up, um, and also a lot of the sort of pro-competitive efficiencies that they argue are either not merger-specific, like you can do that with a joint venture or contracting or some sort of other partnership, or they're just, they don't materialize, right? Like saying you have to buy your neighboring hospital so you can install a new electronic health record is, I mean, it's just absurd on the face of it. No, but I meant that the, the, the reduction in unused beds, for instance. What about that? Is there a benefit to consolidation if you've got a lot of hospitals that have more beds than you need? I, I mean, you can repurpose those beds into other things. You could also close the facility. You could turn it into a multi-specialty ambulatory surgery center. Like, there are lots of other uses for that real estate and physical infrastructure. Okay, so hospitals are poorly run. Um, are they, uh, and they're, expen they're also expensive. Very, very expensive. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me about your work at AEI that is contributing to a reform agenda on this topic. Give me, give me, how are you using your role as a scholar at AI to get your ideas into the, the public discussion? So it's a great platform to sort of ask questions that we haven't asked before. So for hospital consolidation, for example, there are a whole series of policies we're looking at, one that promote consolidation, like the lack of payment site neutrality, where you pay different prices for the same service depending upon where it's delivered, which of course drives hospitals to buy everything under the sun. There are other things that prevent market entry, such as the ban on physician-owned hospitals from participating in Medicare, and then also Stark Law, which prevents physician-owned and operated enterprise from owning integrated care delivery. It's actually sort of interesting, right? If you think about it, if you're the hospital industry and you're wealthy and you have a tax exemption and you have a high salary and you have a lot of subsidies and you have state and local protections at the federal level, you can say, great, I'm going to lobby to prevent my competitors from entering the marketplace. And then you don't actually have to improve your clinical operations. Right. So that's the power of the sort of medical industrial complex protecting itself. Absolutely. I'm very familiar with that. Um, <laughs> but let's go back to physicians-owned uh, hospitals or physician-owned, you said something else. That they uh, integrated care What is delivery. it that the regulatory work ha world has against physician-owned? Physician they believe that physician-owned facilities have sort of special self-interest compared to uh, corporate or nonprofit-owned hospitals. What's interesting is that the market evidence suggests that all enterprises want to earn a living and make a profit, and that tax status and ownership status don't matter. Mm -hmm. There's also or there was also reports that physicians sort of cherry-picked healthier patients and directed them to their facilities. The summative evidence suggests that that's not true. And actually, physician-owned hospitals are two types of hospitals. One is sort of your mom-and-pop community hospitals, which do everything from general surgery to primary care. And the industry actually has no evidence to support a critique of those. That's half the marketplace. The other half of the marketplace is what we call focus factories, where it's like a place where they only do total hips, they only do total knees, or they only do cabbage or open-heart surgery. Hospital for special surgery. Right. Yeah. So it's like those are focus factories, which exploit the well-known volume quality relationship where if you do the same thing a bajillion times, like you do a better job. And in fact, to maintain, if you're say a board certified interventional cardiologist, you have to do a certain number of cardiac caths a year. 
Okay, this is very, very, very heavy. You're, you're a big, big-time scholar. I can tell that you're way above us on these issues, but but it's good. I'm well, Now I've got something right out of the headlines, mm-hmm. something I do to scholars all the time in these discussions. There's a, there's a strike going on in New York in two of the biggest hospitals. All the nurses have gone out on strike, and they basically are striking not for wages but for more nurses. As you, a hospitalist, just without even knowing the facts, whose side are you on on that? I would say I'd take the nurse's side. You think it's likely that they're right, that whatever the management of that hospital is doing, they probably aren't providing enough nurses for the patient care. So I'd say that there are two answers. One is they may not be providing enough nurses, but they also might not be using enough technology to automate processes that nurses or would otherwise be forced to do. So nurses as labor, like do you want nurses charting urine output in the hospital, or do you want them responding to urine output that's automatically gathered and ported into the electronic health record? So I would say that when one is you need to increase technology to increase the efficiency and use of the labor you have, and then two, on top of it, I would say when hospitals tend to cut costs, instead of cutting administrative costs, they cut clinical labor first. And so there, there's a little bias there. Did you hear that? You know, he's talking about the administrative costs. Um, are the big hospital executives who get paid the big salaries. And, and also the many layers of middle management. Yeah, the joke yeah. is, is how, how many uh, hospital administrators does it take to change a light bulb? It's like, well, you need three layers of approval, two committees, and then someone in the C-suite to say it's okay. <laughs> okay, so one more question for me before Phoebe jumps in to raise the level of this discussion uh, <laughs> to a higher level. Um You've, we've talked a lot about the bad. Where is this being done well? Give us an example. We always like to know where this is. What's your model that exists in reality, not some model that you have dreamed up in your head? For hospital competition or hospital operations? Hospital operations. I would say there are a couple. One is Dr. Shetty's heart hospitals in India are a great example of a focus factory that offers mass-produced, mass-customized care to people who need complex heart procedures. Right. Like and it's not like there's a huge private market insurance penetration in, in India. A lot of it's cash pay. I'd say another example is the Shoulders Hernia Hospital in Canada. Right. So this isn't something that has been successful in primarily uh, private pay or cash pay markets like India and also in you know public payer markets like Canada. And there's no reason we shouldn't have it there. In fact, Senator Rand Paul had his hernia repaired there. The one in Canada. Yes. And what, what, but, but tell us more about it's it. A, it's what, a, what is it? Where they do uh, hernia repairs only. So the hospital is set up from all of their operations, from you know your pre-op clinic visit to when you get your surgery to your post-op care to focus on hernia repairs. Okay. So, uh, so, so that's something you like. You like those sorts of, what, do you, what did you call them before? Focus factory. Focus factory. Mm-hmm. When my wife had her hip replaced. Mm-hmm. She went to, we went to the, a mall in Maryland and went into the mall and she was there for five hours and when she came out, she went home. It was the, it was the best healthcare we'd ever got. Is that a focus factory? Uh, as an ambulatory surgery center, it sounds like is what you're describing. Yes. Many of them do just a select group of procedures. So to some degree, yes. Okay. So they've been allowed to establish, and I think that was a physician owned. That's right. Most, I would say the super majority, I think it's like 85 or 90 percent of ASCs are, have some degree or majority of physician ownership. And in fact, the hospital industry has that on their hit list for the next thing that they want to attack. 
So before we get to the question, you, you mentioned earlier that you've written a report, Policy Solutions for Hospital Consolidation, in partnership with someone who was the head of the American Medical Association. Yeah. My, my Tell good, us about this report. My, Go ahead. My good friend Jesse Ehrenfeld is the president-elect of the American Medical Association, and I'd say a creative thinker who bridges divides. Uh, we laid out specific actions that Congress could take to address hospital consolidation. One is they could give the FTC uh, authority over nonprofit hospitals anti-competitive practices, right, and provide enforcement authority for that. Uh, another example is to promote payment site neutrality, so you're not paying different prices for services delivered at different locations. And then, as I mentioned, some of the things like repealing the ban on physician-owned hospitals participating in Medicare. And it was sort of fun because the hospital industry, as you can imagine, got quite upset when this came out. So a guy from representing the medical association, so he's also in the medical business of some sort. That's right. Took on another wing of the medical world, the hospital association, and, and they're not happy. I bet there's a lot of rivalry going that way. The doctors don't really like the hospital administrators. Yeah, the doctors don't like being corporate employees, and now like half of doctors are corporate employees. And while it's not great to have almost no control over your clinical practice environment, if you want to get something changed in your electronic health record, which is basically what you use every day for you know 80% of your day, you have to go through a bajillion committees and many layers of approval from people who aren't actually using the tool that you're using. Hmm. Phoebe, yep. you want to get in on this? Sure. Because yeah. I've got another one, but I will let you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I assume that it's partially because this is what you're seeing as you are at the hospital week to week, but I really like how you focus not only on cost, but on patient experience. I think that's something that we haven't really delved into it AEI as much, but for all of us that interact in some way with the healthcare system, that's very much like front of mind as a top problem, I think, for most people. So I'm curious, as you think about solutions um, in this report or other reports, and you look at this Congress, are there any things that you think would be achievable in a divided government right now that would improve patient experience? Very the, the, the answer is absolutely. So the, yeah. the first thing is, is you emphasize that Price competition is important, and our pocketbooks care about price competition. But personally, we care, care about non-price competition. We care about the quality and the sort of patient experience. And I would say as someone who's not just a doctor but also a patient who's had relatives who have been patients at various parts of you know, the medical industrial complex, the patient experience is terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's really no other way to say it. It's like what other business – do you go, wait for hours, see someone for a couple minutes after filling out a lot of paperwork, and then, you know, go home and get a bill like six months later? Mm -hmm. Like, that's totally insane. And so one of the reasons I'm interested in competition is if we think about every other service or product marketplace that we have, be it, you know, smartphones, cars, whatever it is, the service and the product get better because of competition. Right. Like my iPhone is awesome because there are a bajillion other phone options that I can pick. Like I could have, you know, one of many phones that runs a droid. Uh, there are lots of car manufacturers that I can pick with lots of different vehicles. We don't really have that sort of choice and competition in healthcare, And that's why the patient experience is so terrible. Uh, Congress can do a lot of these things. I mean, most of the issues around hospital consolidation are actually quite bipartisan. If you look mm -hmm. at the Senate, uh, the Judiciary Committee had a hearing in 2021 that I testified at with 
led by Senators Klobuchar and Senator Lee. And, you know, both parties agree that hospital consolidation is a problem. Um, another question out of the headlines that I, that I saw that is reflective of what you're describing, that the hospitals are sort of overly regulated, broken because of their, their lack of competition, and so they don't really care about the customer much. You know what I'm going to refer to? Did you see that the Times did a big blowout investigatory piece on uh, NYU Langone? And did you see this? I did. And, uh, and trustee must prioritize. Yes. What did yeah. you think of that? And did you think that was a symptom of what you're describing? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, most major health systems um, for decades have engaged in this type of behavior where you can purchase a different level of care. Uh, I know people who live in New England who, you know, regularly tell me about that sort of access that they have, and they know that if they go to the ER, they get a special sort of shortcut. And yeah, the, just the story's implication was is that they had set up a separate call line for certain friends of the hospital, yep, major donors and trustees who could say, family member, me, a friend is going to be coming to the ER, and you know, make sure they get the 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 special code red line or something or whatever. And then they would go and get better care. Um, and you do that when you know the regular care you give isn't very good. That's, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It, I would say they don't always get better care, but they get more service and faster care. Uh, sometimes having too much control uh, from political or financial influence in the organization can work against them because the, Individuals will advocate for tests that aren't necessarily justified. But you're right, though, that the inherent issue is, is that if you have a special access line, it means that your base care that you're offering to the general public is probably not very good, nor timely, nor patient-centered. Mm-hmm. I know that um, you've also done a lot of work on CDC reform um, and had an event recently at AEI about that. How was – like walk us through what prescriptions you have, but then also how is that shaped by – practicing during COVID? So I, I practiced during COVID and I, I saw a lot of people die and the CDC was frankly not there, right? Like their guidelines were out of date. Uh, they'd arrive on the news or via email weeks late and I'd, you know, our minds were just blown in terms of, you know, infection precautions, what sort of prescription, what sort of drugs we should be using. And we had no idea and we're sitting there on the front lines, you know, using the same N95 mask for weeks on end mm. and the CDC is working from home. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah. it's so, so right there, like you start to get pretty angry because mm-hmm. you're like, wow, I, I'm working 12 hour shifts and people are dying and I don't have, you know, enough face masks and I don't have access to the appropriate antivirals and I'm not really entirely sure what to do. And, you know, the CDC is sitting at home uh, issuing proclamations. Right. So one that, that just makes you very upset. And then it makes you wonder, like, how did we get to this point? Because the CDC has done historically a great job, right? Ebola, H1N1, um, a whole variety of disease responses over the last couple decades. And what happened is the CDC drifted from its original mission. So communicable disease, we felt incorrectly like we had conquered it, which we hadn't. And the CDC took on all these other tasks, And it broadened the definition of public health and said, I'm going to be all things to all people. And so as a consequence, 
the CDC fell on its face. Uh, it's not that the CDC shouldn't have accountability, because it should, but in doing so, we also have to think about what it looks like for the future. And that means changing, of course, the, re- the uh, responsibilities of the CDC, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and then also addressing their staffing model. Um, what well, I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because we can look back at that for a minute. My memory of the pandemic and I had, you know, I'm, I, I haven't admitted this, but you know, I was on the board of the largest public health system in the United States, the health and hospitals corporation in New York city. Mm. So I was one of, one of your hospital managers huh. of a very large public hospital, which probably mm-hmm. payer mix was probably 80% Medicaid or Medicare and only mm-hmm. 20% private pay. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But in my conversations with my friends who work for the other, other parts of the hospital system, including people that work for the infamous Mike Dowling in New York, who runs the largest private health hospital system on Long Island, um, in the run-up to the pandemic, the number one concern and justification for the shutdowns and some of the very extreme things we did was because the hospitals were going to become overrun. And I want to know, ask you about that. What's your view of the hospital capacity in a circumstance like what we had? Was it up to the challenge? Was it too small? What would what would be your assessment of that? Did, did we over did we overreact to a fear of a crowded hospital, or or did we have to react very dramatically because there were just weren't enough uh, beds? That's a localized question. So in a lot of localities, we definitely overreacted big time. In some localities, we did not. And then this also highlights the sort of basic failures of hospital operations because they'd say, we're going to run out of ICU beds. And the answer is, well, in the operating room, you have a whole bunch of critical care equipment. Like you could turn that into an ICU room quite quickly Hospitals took a while to figure that out, yeah. largely because the people actually involved in clinical care were not making decisions. It was people who were non-clinicians making those decisions. Is that one of your principal concerns, is that non-clinicians have taken over the running of hospitals and, and they've done damage? Yes, but I, I don't think that clinicians should exclusively run it. I think that the best model should win. Right now we've handicapped clinicians so that many of them can't run, own, and operate delivery systems. Um, okay. Now the last question for me, uh, just going back to my, so I, I was on the board of HHC, the Health and Hospitals Corporation. There were 10 public hospitals around New York City, all serving predominantly poor New Yorkers. Um, and I also ran the eligibility system for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So I had a contact with the political activists, people, concerns about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I, and I will tell you that in seven years of being in that, in a very intimate way um, or intense way, um, I never heard a complaint about quality. I only heard a complaint about access to health insurance. So my question is, have, why was that? Why, is it because people have gotten used to what you would call as substandard quality? Or is it we treat the customers terribly, but we we ultimately give them the right care. It just takes longer and is more inconvenient. It does take longer and it's more inconvenient. And frequently we still don't give them the right care and people have become accustomed to it. Right? If you don't know that there is an alternative or if that alternative is very far away from you, you happily have to accept the status quo. Yeah. 
So I, I also people are very obsessed with coverage, right? They believe that coverage equals healthcare and coverage equals healthcare quality. It doesn't. You know, depending upon who you ask, we're at ninety-one to ninety-six percent insurance coverage. Yeah, right. So the, the issue becomes then affordability, and then the quality of that care that is delivered, which is the medical quality. Like, did you follow the right process and get the right outcome? And then also the customer experience or the patient experience. Right. So, uh, but but you divided it between medical quality, do they get the right outcome, and the customer or patient experience. Two yeah. different disciplines. Right. They often don't go together. They don't go together. And that's my question is, 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 is your concerns principally about patient experience, not quality of care? It is about both. So the medical quality of care, patients often don't really realize when something has gone wrong only. And even if it's gone terribly wrong, patients don't always realize it because they don't have the, there's a knowledge asymmetry there. Right. So it may, they may not have gotten, they may not have been cured or they may not be completely healthy when they're discharged or. Or maybe some damage was done, but they don't really know it. And right, and if you have a scan and it shows something and your PCP doesn't you know, get too aggressive about it as they should, and a couple months later you get PCP? admitted, primary care physician, yeah. if you get admitted to the hospital and then you're diagnosed with metastatic cancer, like your answer is, wow, I have metastatic cancer, I need to deal with this. The, whether your primary care physician missed something or not yeah. sort of gets lost in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything more about what you want to do in the healthcare world uh, or would like to see happen in the healthcare world that we haven't covered or, or maybe we didn't even touch or came close to that we should have, that you want to say? I mean, I, I think one of the things we also need to think about is the use of technology in healthcare, and I'm not talking about the electronic health record. I'm talking about the way that we can automate or make self-service a lot of processes that require human capital, be it... clinician capital, managerial capital, or patient time capital. And, like, that's a huge opportunity for the healthcare delivery industry that, you know, we or, frankly, others haven't really addressed. But didn't we make a little progress on that during the pandemic? Didn't certain regulations preventing that get waived and all of a sudden? For telehealth, but the use of automation and AI offer a lot more potential. Okay. And you'll be writing about that and describing that in the coming months and years here at AEI. (laughs) Another great episode of Banter with Phoebe and Dr. Brian Miller. Really great to have you at AI. We're very lucky. Thank you for having me. Phoebe, do you have any final words? No. No? Good. Yeah. Thank you for joining. Welcome welcome back. Mm -hmm. Happy New Year. Yeah. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.